Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. It is at times um, hard to comprehend, Lord, what it is you're seeking to teach us. And I ask, Lord, that especially today, as we're going through this very um, traumatic and chaotic uh, section of Scripture with David's family and all the things they're going through, that you would give us, Lord, a, an awareness, Lord, of what it is that you want us to see, how you want us to grow, how you want us, Lord, to respond to all of this. And I ask, Lord, especially for help as your messenger to simply proclaim your truth for your glory that your people would be strengthened and upheld, convicted, challenged, and reconciled to you. Lord, we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Excuse me. As you know, um, we have been going through the book of 2 Samuel, and um, much of 2 Samuel was about you know, David ascending the throne and all that took place there, and we've seen him and all his his might and all his, his glory, so to speak, um, how God raised him and how God worked through him and how successful he has been. And then for the last month or so, uh, we have been wandering in the mire of David's sin. And it's such a tragic and stark contrast to uh, everything else that we've been looking at about David as we've gone even through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel Together, And we are presently in this horrible section of Scripture um, where we see the fruit of David's sin or the consequences of David's sin, sin um, really um, coming home to roost. Uh, Tamar has been, has been raped. Um, Amnon, who raped her, has been murdered by Absalom. And now Absalom is in exile, uh, and David's family is a mess. And uh, life, friends, is messy. Uh, sin is tragic, it abounds, it's everywhere. It gets in and rises up at times when you least expect it. And as a result, many people live daily longing for a godly Resolve. Um, they're, they're hungering for true reconciliation, reconciliation with friends, reconciliation with family, and then also ultimately reconciliation with God. But too often we find ourselves guilty of seeking or pursuing or, or crafting that reconciliation in a way that flows out of our human wisdom rather than uh, conforming to the revealed will of God. And as we come to chapter 14, we have to ask ourselves this question, what is the problem that this chapter is seeking to resolve? Uh, and I would say this, it's the very fact that David is seated on the throne as king in Jerusalem while his son, Absalom, is living in exile with his maternal grandfather in a place called Gesher. And it appears that the house of David is really at an impasse. It appears that what David had accomplished for so many years is now just unraveled right before him. Absalom is guilty of being a vigilante and taking out revenge on his brother Amnon and David will not act. He wouldn't act when Amnon raped his daughter, and now he doesn't act when Absalom has murdered his son. So, how will all of this be reconciled? Is there a way forward for David and his family? Is there a way forward for the house of David? How can the, the banished one return and be restored? How can God's people be saved? A potential civil war. And that is the struggle of this text, friend. How is resolve going to take place here? And what we find here are three approaches, wise in their own eyes as to how that restoration, how that reconciliation can take place. 
Joab, David, and Absalom himself will each seek to resolve their problem in their own ways. But they'll all leave God out of the picture, ultimately. They will pursue a reconciliation that seeks to bypass God's necessary justice. So, I want to put our proposition this way. The folly of man-centered reconciliation. When man seeks to pursue reconciliation with friends, with family, even with God, according to his own wisdom, and not according to God's word and God's will, there isn't going to be true reconciliation. There's only going to be ongoing conflict and difficulty and struggle. So the folly of a man-centered approach an attempt at reconciliation, which ultimately is empty. So let's jump in and look at Joab's wisdom, Joab's approach to reconciliation. And friends, we're going to spend the bulk of our time here because the bulk of the text is here, um, and, and so we want to give it its place. And it really helps us understand even the, the last two methods of reconciliation. Um, and so we'll give a little extra time here, so don't panic if we're getting close to the end and I'm still on point number one. Um, I've seen that in your eyes sometimes, um, but uh, hang with me here. Let's let the text speak. Um, notice, first of all, Joab's motive. We find that in verse one. The question we might ask ourselves at this point is, why Joab and why now? What is, what is going on? What is the motive for Joab inserting himself in the affairs of state. I mean, he is a military leader, but he's not necessarily a political leader. He is there to do David's bidding, but now he begins to, to kind of nurse and, and manipulate a plan. And so with that in mind, look at verse 1. Now, Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. There's just two things I want you to think about here. First of all, um, Joab's pedigree. The, the, the narrator here takes a moment and he introduces Joab. This is not the first time, but he's, he's pointing out something here. Joab was a military leader, a servant of David, but he was also part of David's family. And being a part of David's family meant that Joab was acting, and we'll find this out later, he was acting with intentions of helping the family to move forward and ultimately helping the nation to move forward. But notice uh, his assessment. Now, in, in the ESV, it tells us here that David's heart went out to Absalom, given the impression that, that David was overcome with fatherly compassion for his son who was now living in exile. The Hebrew word is far more ambiguous. We talked a little bit about this last time but that it indicates that his heart went out against Absalom. Meaning that he, there was a hostility in David that wanted to bring justice to Absalom for the, the murder that he committed against his son Amnon. Now, to be honest with you, as I, as I researched this and studied this out, the commentators out there uh, really kind of you know, parted the lines, one one way, one the other way, but there was something that I found that was consistent, and this is kind of, I think, what the, what the point of the text is uh, sharing for us or is explaining for us, and that is this, that, that David was in a state of conflict. He wanted to bring justice, but he also had a genuine fatherly love for his son. On the one hand, David is a compassionate father who was pining away for his son, certainly, whether that be Amnon or whether that be Absalom. On the other hand, David is a reluctant king to exercise justice for a murder that had been committed. Now, you've, you've seen images of, of mothers in particular who, uh, who go to a place like um, San Quentin and they have a, a son who's on death row and it's time for him to, to be executed and the mother is there saying, I love you, son, and the son has been found guilty and justice is going to be carried out. But that mom still what? Still loves him. 
So you, you understand that there is this familial compassion and love that is there, but there's this wrestling match between that and justice. And I think as parents, that's something we wrestle with. And when we discipline, these are, these are issues that we struggle with. I know I do. So Joab here is motivated as a family member because of this, this conflict that he sees going on with David. Now, later in the interaction between David and the woman of Tekoa, we're going to find what appears to be an honest assessment of Joab's motives. Look at verse 20. She says, and David asking here, you know, why are you coming telling me this story as this big reveal now takes place? She says, in order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. So Joab is trying to manipulate. He's trying to manipulate, but I would say manipulate with, with good intentions for the sake of the family, for the sake of the nation. Now, what are some, some reasons why that might be true? Well, to simply bring reconciliation between David and Absalom. It's not good for a family to be divided. And, and Joab, of course, being a part of the family, wants resolution. Understand that. Another possibility is this. If there is a divide, if now the heir apparent or the eldest son is living in exile and something happens to David and now the nation has to say, well, who's going to be king next? And the heir apparent is outside. It's just, it's going to be chaos it's going to be trouble, and we'll see civil war does eventually break out, right? And we'll read that as we continue on. And so there's a real concern here, I think, that is legitimate. The other possibility here is that, is that uh, Joab actually sees in Absalom the next king of Israel. Now, it would be logical, except that there's the possibility in the text when, when Solomon is born and, and God gives Solomon this special name that God is already putting a stamp on his younger brother, Solomon, to be the, that, not Absalom's younger brother, to be that, that further king. But as we'll see a little later in the story, um, there's, there's a constant problem within Israel, and that is to see leadership in human terms rather than in godly terms. Remember, Absalom is described as this handsome man, not a blemish with a full head of hair, all right? And brings back memories of other people that were like that too. So the bottom line is, we're not exactly sure what his motive is specifically, but there is this tone that says, you know what, he has some good intentions for the sake of the nation here to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this. Now let's look now more specifically at his plan, at his plan. No matter what his motives are, he had a plan to get around the legal problem for Absalom's sin of murder. And he clearly remembers the prophet Nathan and his use of a story to capture the attention of David. And so he, he, he seeks the help of this woman of Tekoa. And she's described as a wise woman. Now the word wise here is the same word as crafty. And it's the same word that is used to describe a man by the name of Jonadab, who we read about in chapter 13, who is very, very skillful, who is very, very crafty. So he's now soliciting help from someone who is very, very wise, but skillful, very crafty. True wisdom, friends, is the skillful application of God's word to the affairs of life in such a way as to honor and glorify God. So someone can be skillful, someone can be crafty, and be ungodly, all right? And that's what we're going to find, that's what we saw with Jonadab, but that's what we find when we look out. There are lots of people who are skillful and who are crafty, but are not wise because they're not seeking to honor God. So that's the woman of Tekoa, but... Notice now the, the words of Joab, verse 2. Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning for days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And so this, this woman of Tekoa is to go in this, this disguise 
and, and to, to, to take on this, this persona of being a widow in distress, but recognize this. This is, this is Joab speaking through the woman. When she speaks, she is, she is reflecting Joab's wisdom, Joab's desire. And so together they craft the story, they craft um, the events that are going to take place. And so let's look now at what I'm calling the story. And it's divided really into three parts. Part one. And the goal here, part one, is to draw David into the story. She's to gain the sympathy of the king by appealing to his feelings of compassion and justice. Now, this is a really clever assignment because David, as the king, had the responsibility of, of hearing people's issues and problems and acting as a judge for the people. And with the help of Joab, who, again, was part of the leadership then, I'm sure he could have gotten her you know, a fast pass to get to the front of the line, so to speak, and to kind of slip in so this would happen pretty quickly. Now, what's interesting here, though, is that what we have is, is, is logic that is tight, and it will progress purposefully. So they, they've thought through what they're going to say and how they're going to say it, and this woman is very, very skillful, not only in how she is acting, but even the choice of words and the moment of how she speaks and the way that she speaks has all been thought through. But we need to remember something. What she's about to say is a fictitious story. So when it, it's her turn to come before the king, she turns on the skillfulness and immediately appeals to the king by saying, save me, O king. I mean, she's, she's, she, she has, she's looking the part. Uh, she probably um, you know, is expressing the part. Her words help that. This is a woman in distress, a widow in distress in particular. Verse 4, when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? Now with the king's permission, she presses on with her story. But with that appearance, with her clothing, with the manner, all reinforcing what she is about to say. And she answered, Alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead and your servant has two sons. And they quarreled one with another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And of course, that story is very reminiscent of what story? Cain and Abel. You guys remember that one? All right, Genesis um, chapter 3, I believe it is. And here's what it says. And now, uh, well, this is this, as she continues on the story. She says, and now the whole clan has risen against your servant, the one, the son who has, who has killed this other son, um, accidentally, and they say, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Now, let's just walk briefly through the points here, the points of her argument. The big picture of, is of this grievance with her clan because they're seeking vengeance for the blood of the brother who has been killed. But what they're really not interested in is justice. What they're actually really interested in is inheritance. That's her contention. Because with both sons gone, she is now the widow who's left. Her husband has died. That means that all of their property and stuff will, will go out to the family. Okay, there's a, there's a motive in this story. And it's a motive that is capturing David. Or she's drawing him in with all this. And so after that, she doesn't want to lose the only son that was left. She fears that her husband's name and family will disappear and have no legacy. Her reason for living, her still flaming coal, is about to die out if this happens. And in her story, she certainly is a woman in distress. Now, there certainly were similarities to her story and to David's situation with Absalom, but the parallels were still incomplete. Her accidental quarreling sons fell into a completely different legal um, category than the premeditated murder of Absalom. All right? Now, in such cases, when someone uh, was guilty of manslaughter, which is the category, uh, according to the Old Testament, 
they had um, they have the right to uh, to flee to a place called a city of refuge. And a city of refuge was uh, once they got into the, the the boundaries of the city of refuge, they could not be um, the revenge could not uh, take place. So what happens in a situation of manslaughter um, or or p- potential perceived murder is that an avenger of blood would represent the family and chase down that person and they would kill them for the death of that individual. But that person, if it was manslaughter, would run to a city of refuge. While they were in that city, they were safe. However, they had to now attend and be a part of a trial, so to speak, with the elders of that city who would determine their guilt or their innocence. And if they determined that they were innocent, that it was no, innocent meaning manslaughter, they could live freely within the bounds of the city of refuge. But every seven years, there was liberty, and those people were released, and that the avenger of blood could not pursue them. However, if they were found guilty of murder, not manslaughter, then they were handed over to the avenger of blood. Okay? So in other words, there, there's a category here that says manslaughter, city of refuge, murder, yeah, city of refuge, but death. Okay? Two separate categories. Keep that in mind here because that comes up a little bit later. So, so now David responds to this woman and her story. He's drawn in by his feelings to have compassion for her plight. Verse 8, then the king said to the woman, go to your house, I will give orders concerning you. Now you have to wonder whether or not that's just kind of like his standard statement, right? <laughs> Thank you for telling me your problem, we'll get back to you. Okay? It's just kind of a legal judge kind of speaking those things. But it wasn't enough for this woman. That didn't satisfy her. Well, of course, it wasn't part of the plan. What did he mean by orders? Did that mean that he was going to rule in her favor? He had only heard one side of the story, and so possibly he, you know, he would have to listen to, to another side of the story, another family member to figure out what was going on. But remember, this is a fictitious story. Right? So she's pressing on. She's going to continue on. So rather than give David the opportunity to leave her with this vague response, she presses um, her integrity by taking personal responsibility for the truthfulness of her words, which, of course, is a lie. Look at verse 9. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. In other words... What I'm saying to you, O king, is true. And I'm putting on my own very life the integrity of the truthfulness of this. So the king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. So by virtue of her persistence, by virtue of her words, by virtue of her dress, by virtue of her story, David now sighs emphatically with the woman. He would not allow anyone to move against her son. The avenger of blood could not touch him. Okay? Now notice what happens in verse 11. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, the king, or sorry, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Now, isn't it interesting when someone is even in this this disguised story, when they're trying to manipulate uh, an effective um, response here by the king, that they will use the name of the Lord. They bring God into the picture. Even David brings God into the picture of what's going on here. So, so far, so good for the woman. The woman has been skillful, to be sure. She's been successful in her first stage of the plan. She had won David over as evidenced by his unambiguous oath of support for the woman's cause. But this was not the end of the story. Actually, this was only the beginning. This was the first stage. Now we move to part two. Part two. And I'm calling this the challenge you can imagine David thinking, okay, uh, I'm, we're done here. Um, who's next? 
Um, and he's looking down the line for the next person that's going to speak. But this woman, she's not done. And so she skillfully and carefully and boldly presses on. Verse 12, then the woman said, please, let your servant speak a word, my lord, the king. And he says, speak. Um, in saying speak, he just opened up a Pandora's box now of challenge and confrontation that flows out of what has just been said. This is ultimately the point of the encounter. This is where Joab wanted the encounter to go so he could say these words through the woman. Now listen, verse 13, and the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We, we, we are all like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up. But God will not take away life. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now you can just, you listen to all that's being said there and it's clear that the story is to be a parallel between David and Absalom. The whole situation that we have here. So her words are daring. They were skillfully and carefully chosen. But she even refrains from using Absalom's name, but it's unmistakable that she's pointed to David's hypocrisy or the perceived double standard that she or Joab viewed is unmistakable. So what are the four points? Well, you, you see them up there on the screen. The four points really of what, what she's getting at, what Joab is getting at. Number one, why had David planned such a thing against Israel? Why was he against Israel? I mean, you were the king. Why are you against your nation? quite an accusation. Um, your actions um, are doing that. And so what she's saying is your treatment of your son Absalom is the thing that is hurting our nation. Now there's, there's a half-truth there. And it'll ultimately we'll see that as we press on in 2 Samuel. But we're getting to see what Joab is actually concerned about. David's continued antagonism toward his son. Secondly, you are convicting yourself. David probably was, wasn't still uh, sure about what she was talking about, but, but with her story, she is pointing out that David is living this double standard. If, if you will respond this way to my situation with my son and the family members that are that are, that are coming to exercise vengeance against him, then how come you yourself are doing the very same thing by pursuing your son and not bringing him home. So he's convicting himself. And the third one, of course, is you've not brought your banished one home. He was, uh, this was kind of speaking in roundabout terms, but still without using his name, the king does not bring his banished one home again. The issue is not that David has done something, but he has not done something. And that something was to bring his son home. He had not been merciful. He had not been compassionate to his own son. He had not treated his son like David had treated this fictitious son in her story. In other words, if it was right for David to respond to her story, then it was right for him to bring him home. But did you notice how her words put the responsibility for Absalom's exile on the shoulders of David? I mean, who was it that went into exile in the first place? Absalom. Why? Because Absalom chose to do that. Because he knew that he had murdered his brother. It was all the other brothers that went back to Jerusalem. David had not done anything, however, to bring him back. He had not reached out. He had not even pursued him to bring him back and to exercise justice. And then she says, she kind of gets theological on him, death is irreversible. We must all die. Yeah, that's true. Everyone will die sometime. When death comes, it's like spilled water on the ground. You can't gather it up again. In other words, why are you spending so much time just mourning over Amnon's death and thinking about that? that that's gone. You can't, you can't undo that, David. That's, that's the point here. God doesn't delight in taking life, but in giving it. In other words, why would you want to exercise justice and kill another son? 
And that's why she moves on and says, he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. God has provided a way to bring reconciliation with Absalom. You don't have to treat him with hostility. You can welcome him in. But the king of Israel, God's servant, does nothing to bring his son back. And then to... to, I want to say, add to the whole thing these veiled accusations, these half-truths, these, these inferences out of the, the, the table uh, now spoken. She, she quickly reverts back to her own story and just pours on the flattery. Did you catch that? <laughs> just listen to the flattery that's going on here. Verse 15. Now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king It may be that the king will perform my request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my Lord, the king, is like the angel of God. To discern good and evil, the Lord your God be with you. I mean, that's just like, that's just getting paint, man. You're just laying it on thick. That's what she's doing. You can just hear the accolades as she speaks. King David, I was in such trouble, and I thought, who could I turn to? Where could I go? I could go to the one who is the messenger of God, who, who knows to discern what is right and what is wrong. The irony is, (laughs) she is is giving him a tall tale, and yet she is flattering him with her words. Now, the third part of this story. The light begins to shine in David's mind. He may have actually heard some of this before. We don't know, but he begins to think, okay, there's something going on here. Who's behind what this woman is saying? And, and he perceives, he begins to discern, right, good from evil here, thinking about, all right, who is behind this? Verse 18, and the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord king speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? You have to wonder. I mean, this is a person coming and, and putting their, you know, their concern before the king, the judge, and he's able to say, wait a second, This is Joab. So you have to wonder whether Joab had said some things to him that he just refused to listen to. There's no need for the woman to deny Joab's involvement, so she continues with her flattery and argument by saying this. As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn from the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. Continue the flattery there. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in in, in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of the things your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God uh, to know all things that are on the earth. Now David sees things clearly. Joab is behind all of this. And it's well-intended but it is still manipulative. Now, what's the problem? What what the woman has presented in telling her story is only a half-truth. This whole ruse is a half-truth. The truth is that David has not acted and Israel as a nation is facing potential peril. That's a truth. But here's the half-truth, half-truth number one, um, a biblical misdirection. I don't think I have this up there for you. There's a biblical, oh, no, I do. There's a biblical misdirection. I want you to think through this. Her son is guilty of manslaughter, which means that, that there is a means for restoration and reconciliation in a city of refuge. But what Absalom had done was premeditated murder. And according to the law, his sentence 
is death. So there's no comparison between the two. Her story does not match the story of David and Absalom, but she's trying to force David into a mold to accept one for the other. Because if you can just simply say, hey, listen, if God has a means for this, then, then why can't you do it? But she adds to that then a sentimental manipulation. She's, she is telling David, and I'm just going to just kind of give some words that would describe what she's communicating to David through all this. Look, your son Amnon is dead, and you cannot undo that, but you have another son. Why are you being such a legalistic stick in the mud by wanting to take his life? David, if you were truly spiritual, one whose wisdom, like the angel of God who discerns good from evil, you would act like God who makes provision for life. You would find a way to see beyond the legalistic externalization. You would find a way to be restored and reconciled to your son. You see, you would find a way, if you were really spiritual, you would find a way for reconciliation to take place. And the third thing I would say that she's saying is this, David, your problem is that you're too legalistic. Where's the mercy? Where's the grace? Don't you think that you should behave like the loving God you serve? Now, do, 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 you, do you hear just the, the, the legalistic, when I say legal, biblical gymnastics that's taking place here? The theological twisting that's going on, it sounds good. God is loving. Where's the mercy? Restoration's important. But it is not a full truth because there's something missing. What is missing? What's missing is justice. Now, whose voice is really speaking here? Is this the voice of God coming through this woman? The voice of God coming through Joab? Or is this another voice that's speaking? And I would dare say that this is the voice of the serpent speaking. And he loves to speak in half-truths that sound right, that sound biblical, but are far from what God actually has revealed in his word. It was the serpent who questioned God's legalistic rules in the garden when he said to Adam and Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Or you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing what? Good and evil. Now, isn't there a familiar ring to the words that we're hearing coming out of the, the mouth of this woman? David, you're like an angel of God discerning good from evil. And at the same time, David is being praised for his wisdom, for his discernment. He is being told that his, his kingly position gives him the freedom to edit the requirements of the law. What she and Joab are seeking for David to bring about is reconciliation that bypasses justice. They're asking David to bypass God's revealed will, to bypass what he sees in the law, and to get at reconciliation because that's what a loving God would do, that's what a loving father should do, that's what a loving king should do. It all sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? Look back at verse 11. And she said, please let the king invoke the Lord, your God. See, he's bringing God into this. This is, this is the way of the servant, just bringing, bringing God into the picture. Now, friends, it's a reminder that we can be guilty of doing the complete opposite of what God's word and will reveals while at the same time using his name to stamp approval on what we think is best. We can be promoting sin while at the same time invoking the name of God. And those 
who are simple in their understanding of God's word hear the spiritualness of what's being said and are drawn away. And friends, we must be very, very careful. Sentimentality will draw us away from what God's word says, from what God's word requires. There can be no true reconciliation without true justice. Now, this is what I hear many times, and you probably have also. I'll say it in the way that I hear it. Pastor, where is the grace? Maybe I'm dealing with someone's sin, or maybe it's in a counseling situation, or maybe it's in a, in a church discipline issue, and it's, Pastor, where is the, the grace? Where is the mercy? Why are you talking about sin so much? Why don't we talk about love and mercy and grace? And friends, just so you understand, we do, okay? But... Why are you talking about sin and suffering and obedience, or, you know, and obedience and the need for it? It's because true reconciliation cannot take place without true justice. And true mercy and true grace only come as a result of justice. You can't have mercy without justice. You can't have grace without justice. Dale Davis rightly concludes, this is so helpful. He says, Nathan's parable... So we go back here to to David's sin. Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience as against his feelings. Right? The woman of Tekoa, as prompted by Joab, to rouse his feelings against his conscience. Now hear this, friends. This is how our world works. We say this is what God's word says. And the world comes in, and even much of the church comes in and says, yeah, but you know, and they, they start to say, but don't you care and don't you love? And we want to reach people. And so we start, we start rousing feelings against the revealed word of God. And what ends up happening is the word of God is minimized. It's set aside. And we have this false understanding that ministry is going on but it's ministry that is void of the gospel because the gospel at its core demands justice. Now, friends, this is, this is the way of the world, but this sadly is also part of the way of the church. And this can also be the way of your heart, especially when you're drawn in as a parent or drawn in as a friend and your sentimentality is overruling the clear revealed word of God. Now, friends, it's a challenge for us all. But when our feelings drive our consciences, we will play gymnastics with God's truth and so twist it to conform it to our wishes. Just look at society today. Look at the different people that want to live their lives their own way, and that's what they'll do with the Word of God. Now, however, well-intended man's ideas are about God and how they think that he should should conform to us. Man's wisdom seeks reconciliation without justice, and in the end, it will still be continued trouble, continued emptiness for them. That's Joab's wisdom. Through the woman. But it is insufficient. Now, let's look at David's wisdom. David's wisdom. Having listened to the woman's story and been drawn in, David gives his consent. And it would appear that he is like moved sentiment, sentimentally as he now refers to his son as the young man Absalom. Look at verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go and bring back the young man Absalom. It's like he's connected with the story. He's connected with what's being said. And so he moves now out of sentimentality. Joab is now overjoyed, of course. He's seen the light. My story has worked. My plan is now going to be accomplished. And so Joab, he doesn't waste any time. He praises David. Verse 23, Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. Joab jumps on this opportunity and brings Absalom back. But Joab has made a significant miscalculation. David's sentimentality 
only lasts so long. And then reality seeks in. Look at verse 24. And, and the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. And that happened for two years. So Joab goes and brings Absalom, and he's coming back to Jerusalem thinking, okay, resolution taking place, reconciliation, woohoo, this is great. And he gets there, and David says, no, I've had time to think about this. He's in Jerusalem, but keep him away from me. And you, you see a different Absalom in the story, different Joab in the story after this. So David allows Absalom to be nearer to him, but not to be reconciled. And it appears that David is still torn. David could not bring himself to, to treat Absalom either as a guilty murderer, which would mean that he would be executed, but he could not also bring himself to treat him as innocent, which would mean he would welcome him back and restore him back into the palace, the family. The wisdom that David applies to the situation is simply to avoid the issue. Keep Absalom away at a safe distance, and he will not have to respond either way. So there's a sense of non-activity here. It's a response of indecision and avoidance. And it, it has all the appearance to, to some as, as, as though things are reconciled. David lives over here. He's doing his own thing. Absalom's over here. He's doing his own thing. Ah, life can go on. We have peace at last. There isn't conflict going on in the streets. All right, both Absalom and David are now in Jerusalem, but this is only a facade of peace. I just think, you know, here we are in the Christmas season, and one of the, the foolish things that man says is, oh, we want peace. Problem is they have no idea what kind of peace they're talking about. This is the kind of peace that many people want. We have Absalom, and we have David, and as long as they don't get together and fight, we have peace. But there's no reconciliation going on. That's not real peace. It's a facade of peace. It's an appearance of restoration. But antagonism and uncertainty and brooding is still going on. See, Joab is, is frustrated that the reconciliation he was seeking for David is not taking place. And as we'll see, Absalom is frustrated because his father isn't pursuing reconciliation either way. Now, friends, this is, this is what happens sometimes is as through life we are, um, you know, someone has or you perceive that someone has committed a sin against you. At first, you're hurt and you're offended. And you, you kind of ponder that or you wrestle with that. And then you go through the feelings of, of self-justification for your sinful anger against them. And, and then, because you are a follower of Christ, you, you, you're convicted uh, by God, and, and, and you open up your Bible, and you begin to read some verses. And here's just some, some verses that you probably would go to, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, where it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Get, and give no opportunity to the devil. And you're like, oh, I've got to deal with this, and I, this can't go on. I've got to move fast on this, whatever fast looks like in that moment. And then you think, okay, well, what about Matthew 7, 1 through 5? We're not going to get into all the theology of that, but the idea there is, all right, but how can I go and talk to this person about their sin against me when I have planks that are in my eye? And so you begin to wrestle now, even with God's word, about what you should do. And, and then you remember Matthew 18 and verse 15, where it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And it's like, yeah, I need to do that, but I've got these planks. And how can I, with these planks, go to my brother? And so you get to this, this one place where you're saying, I want to do what God's word says. But then you're also motivated or not motivated by your feelings and what you see about your own sinfulness. So you're you're frozen by your sinfulness because you know you have many planks coming out your eye. You're hampered by your feelings because you still feel justified by your anger and that offense against you. You're immobilized by your fears, not knowing how confronting and seeking to restore your, uh, this person will, will actually end up. So you come up with a rationalized answer. Don't do anything. Um... Hope that it'll just work itself out. Um, pretend that they're 
really isn't an issue going on. And so maybe it's someone that was, you know, it's part of church and you come to church and rather than deal with it, you, you find yourself start to avoid interacting with that person and when you do make eye contact, you quickly look away or you purposely don't sit near them so you don't have to deal with them and you don't realize that you're blinded because you don't see how destructive things are getting, how bitterness is churning up in your heart and how frustration and anger are being fueled by your avoidance and indecision. And David He couldn't make up his mind with Absalom, therefore he was torn between that fatherly affection for his son and that kingly justice for the murder of his daughter. So in his mind, no action was the best wisdom. But that no action avoided justice again. That facade of reconciliation didn't travel down the road of justice. It chose to ignore it. It chose to settle on some rationalized principle instead. So that's David's wisdom, it's not good wisdom, and in fact it causes more frustration for the family. And then we move into Absalom's wisdom here, we'll begin reading at verse 25 through 27. And what's, what's I think interesting here, you ask yourself the question, why would the narrator put all this data about Absalom here? What does he want to accomplish? Look at verse 25 and following. Now in, in all Israel... There was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was... A beautiful woman. I think the narrator here is wanting to emphasize Absalom's growing popularity among the people. Let's just remember something. He had not been with David for five years, three years in exile, and now back for two years living in Jerusalem, still there. His popularity is growing. You, you hear that in words like, in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance. I mean, people knew about him. People, he was a celebrity. So notice Absalom's popularity then. What did we learn about Absalom? He was a handsome man. He was unblemished. He had very fine head of hair. His family was growing many sons. He honored his sister who was raped by naming his daughter after her. It's an honorable thing to do. Look, look at that perfect family. That perfect man. I mean, wow. What an example he is to the people. What a fine specimen of a man he's turned out to be. He's the kind of man who would be a great successor to the king. He'd be the kind of man people could follow. But it also reveals that Absalom was a little self-centered and narcissistic. He's full of himself, full of his own hair, apparently. I mean, seriously, who weighs their hair at the end of the year? Unless, of course, you're giving it to charity, and I get that. You know, they have this a special day, you know, we're going to weigh the hair of Absalom at the end of the year, everyone has a party, and stuff. it's like, who does that? But how ironic that David had been tricked into saying of the woman's son, who ultimately was representing Absalom, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. The narrator has some ways just to put some things in there to help us understand there is a connection going on here. Remember, Israel had a historical problem of looking for potential leaders who were long on image but short on substance. Do you remember Saul and how he impressed the people? He was handsome and tall, we're told. He was a a man who could be a king like the other nations had. Oh, man, they wanted to go after him, and they brought him in. Then a little later, even even Samuel, when, when God was directing him, to David's family, David was a non-issue. He was, he was off taking care of the sheep. And Samuel is overcome by his brother Eliab. He was ready to 
anoint him. He's like, this is the guy, right? This is, this is it. And then God's like, no, no, no. Get, get, bring the shepherd boy in. See, it, it's natural to follow someone who just looks good and seems to have it all together. But did you notice the silence in this description of Absalom? It's all about his appearance, but there's nothing about character. There's nothing about integrity. There's nothing about love for God. And it begs the question, what is that? What is it that really matters for us in leadership? What does it tell you about the people who will follow this kind of leader? Notice Absalom's pragmatism now. Now this self-centered man is is now two years, and he's pressing things home. He is just frustrated. He is angry with his father. Verse 28, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So what does he do? He thinks to himself, I'll get Joab. Joab knows the king, and I can, I can stir him up. And he, he says, hey, come, come. I, I want you to come, and we want to deal with this. And so Absalom gets Joab ultimately by by the fact that he sends his servants to go burn his field. And so Joab, who really didn't want to come, he didn't want to get involved in this, comes and he says, what on earth did you do that for? And Absalom says, because I want you to go to the king and basically say, listen, if he's guilty, put him to death. If he's innocent, be reconciled. It's quite a bold statement. It's quite a bold action. But he's just frustrated. Enough of this situation. But notice there's no mention of sorrow. There's no mention of him acknowledging that he's violated God's law or anything. He just wants reconciliation. He wants the judge to declare things okay. And so Absalom actually gets his prize, doesn't he? Verse 33 and following, then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Now, a cursory reading would be like, oh, this is great. <laughs> there is reconciliation. Oh, the father is kissing the son. Isn't this great? You know, end of story. The problem here is there is no intimacy going on at all. We know that even by the words that are being used here. Then Job went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king, not his father, and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. All we have here, friends, is a subject and his king. There's no intimacy going on. There's no weeping. There's no words of sorrow. There's no affection. It's just a formal kiss of a king. Kind of reminds me of an elementary school playing ground where there are kids playing and all of a sudden two boys start you know, getting at each other. They end up being embroiled in some kind of a wrestling match and fight and the, the teacher comes and pulls them apart and separates them at arm's length and speaks words to them and says, we don't act like this. We don't behave like this. We're not supposed to be like this. No, no, you say you're sorry. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. And you say you're sorry. So oh, I'm sorry. And they shake hands. All right, you guys are fine. And they walk away angry at each other. Nothing has been resolved. Now, see, that's what Absalom wanted. He wanted a legal declaration, reconciliation, but there was no actual reconciling that was, that was taking place at all. And that just bypasses the justice of God. No sin is confronted, no sin is confessed or repented of, no seeking of forgiveness, no true restoration at all, just an empty, formal kiss for appearance sake so that he could be welcomed back into the palace. This is a forced reconciliation, but it failed even to satisfy Absalom, as we'll find out in the passages to come. What we've seen, friends, in these men are three foolish attempts at reconciliation that all avoid and bypass justice. Joab, through sentimental reconciliation, bypasses justice. David, through his perceived reconciliation, if I do nothing, it'll all be okay. Absalom now, with a, a formal, forced reconciliation, um, gets what he wants, but it really isn't reconciliation. Now, this morning, 
I just want to pause and say, okay, we've seen this, the folly of human reconciliation, but we want to consider what is true reconciliation. What does it look like? Because I think that's, that's, that's the, that's the take-home for us, especially as we're going to be entering into the Lord's table in just a minute. So bear with me as we, as we walk through just these, these three main points together. How are we to seek reconciliation God's way? And the short answer is true reconciliation can only come way by virtue of God's Justice. They remind you of the, the words of the woman of Tekoa when she said in her craftily way, we must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground. We cannot be gathered up again, but God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. There is means that God has provided to bring reconciliation It's not means of a sentimental love that is void of justice. Now hear this. God didn't one day in in the order of his creation and while man was was living on this earth and behaving in sinful ways say, you know what, I'm just, they're just going crazy down there. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna love them. That's it. I'm just gonna say, you know what, I love you. Now, that's a half truth because God did say, I love you, but he said, I love you in a specific way. And it was a way that satisfied the demands of justice. And he said, I love you by virtue of the fact that I'm sending my son to go to the cross. And on that cross, something's going to happen. He is going to die, and he's going to suffer in your place. And when he suffers and dies in your place, justice will be satisfied. And through that justice, we can be reconciled to him. And so there's three words. Just I want to make sure we're dialing in on, first of all, this word justification. I want to be quick about it. Justification. Because of the cross, we are justified. And this is a legal word that says because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and because of our repentance and the pursuit of forgiveness, we have been declared righteous. We have been declared, yes, we were guilty, but because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, we are now declared innocent. It's a legal term. It satisfies the law. We are justified. Second word, redemption. Because of the cross, we're redeemed. We have been paid for. The payment necessary for our sin has been made by Jesus on the cross, and by virtue of that payment, we have been liberated from the bondage of sin. We're no longer slaves. We are now living our our lives with joy as free people because of Christ. Now this is all because of the cross, friends. And this is all justice taking place. Now because of our justification, because of our redemption, we now have the fruit of that, which is reconciliation. And that reconciliation then means that we now, because of justification and redemption, can, can, can walk in newness of life as part of the family of God. We are no longer enemies. God has brought us back from the place of banishment and welcomed us into the palace of his family. And it all comes through justice. So friends, when, when, when someone says to you, oh, but God is love, they may actually be giving you just half of the story. Because God demands justice for true reconciliation to take place. We must not ever forget that. And hear this. Truth and mercy kiss at the cross. The truth of our sin, the truth of the need for justice and God's love and his mercy and his compassion for mankind, they meet and they kiss at the cross and they 
they burst forth with reconciliation for those who have embraced Christ as the Lord and Savior. My friends, that's the kind of kiss that we receive from our king. Not an empty kiss of a facade of peace. Absalom, after his kiss of half reconciliation, would walk in the shadows plotting his father's overthrow. But we, after the kiss of true reconciliation, walk on in life in the power of the Holy Spirit reconciled to God. That's what God wants us to see here. There's a need for reconciliation. Life is messy. Reconciliation, however, can only come through justice. Lord, help us today to process this. So easy for us to want to take the the shortcut. We're so used to the, the, the fast food mentality of our culture, even our Christian culture, that we are so easily led astray by sentimentality to bypass the need for justice, to bypass the need for the gospel. And Lord, sometimes we just don't want to deal with things. We just think that they'll just do their own thing. And sometimes we just want to go through the formality of, of reconciliation. And Lord, I just, I just ask if there's any sense of that in our hearts today that that, that that would be clear and that by your Spirit's help we would fight through that with the truth of your gospel. We would humble ourselves before you. We would praise you for allowing us to see the sinfulness of our heart and how we have violated your will by not seeing the beauty and the need for true justice to take place and the need for that to get to the place of reconciliation. Lord, we thank you that you have done, for us, done that for us on the cross. And Lord, even as we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, may we celebrate it with, with a view to the fact that we are reconciled now to you because of what you have done in providing our justification and our redemption. Help us now, we ask in your name. Amen.